Welcome to The Order of Things. I'm your host, Alec, and today we're talking to Kristen Godsey about her book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. Kristen is a professor of Russian and Eastern European studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also a member of the graduate group of anthropology there. Since the title is pretty self-explanatory, I'll just get right into the show. Right after I remind you to subscribe, we're available on almost every podcast app. And if we're not, please let us know. And also, if you like the show, please, please, please leave us a review. It helps other people find us and coddles my fragile sense of self-worth. Hello. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? I'm great. I I, I think we can just get get straight into it. Um, Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about the main argument of your book that women have better sex under socialism. (laughs) Right. (laughs) There's a a pretty economic idea behind it. That is women often marry out of financial necessity rather than love in, in capitalist societies. Can you go into detail about that a little bit? Sure. So this is something that socialist feminists and early socialists going back to the utopian socialists in the early part of the 1800s have been talking about for a really long time. And it's the idea that capitalism disproportionately harms women or people who are primarily responsible for caregiving in the home. It needs the labor, like it needs somebody to reproduce the labor force, but it doesn't want to pay for it. Um, basically, there's a kind of double expropriation that's going on. Obviously, the workers are having their surplus value extracted, but but women are also, if they're in the home and they're doing this caregiving work, they're supporting capital by keeping you know profits high because all of the labor of reproducing the labor force in the future for the future is done basically for free. And so because of this, Women are largely financially dependent on men, especially if they don't have opportunities for education or employment outside of their role as caregivers. And that means that, you know, they're less likely to be able to leave a relationship that is abusive or unhealthy or basically otherwise unhappy in some way. And so the basic idea um, of all these early socialists was that if you wanted to create a more just and equitable society, you had, you had to include women's emancipation. And this goes back to Owen in, in, in Scotland. This goes to Fourier and Saint-Simon, the French utopian socialist. Obviously, it's picked up by August Bebel in Women mm. and Socialism in 1879. And it goes all the way through Engels with the origin of the family private property in the state, which is that if you need If you want to have a more robust society, a more equitable society, you have to somehow socialize the labor that women do in the home for free. Just to summarize that a little bit, uh, pre-socialism in Russia, you have women doing how like labor in the house, raising children, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, They cannot leave their marriage and go find a job because of a lot of cultural and social reasons. Um, then socialism comes wrong and, and women start working in, in factories. They start getting educations. They start working in, in you know, science and, and all kinds of things like that. Uh, and then th- there is the ability to sort of enter or leave relationships as they can. And then also in, in your book, you, you note that with the fall of, of uh, you know, the, the end of the Soviet Union, it kind of reverts back to the way it was where there's sort of been a, a pop-up of, uh, I think you call them like, or maybe this is actually what they're called, the gold digger academies yeah, in Russia. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so I think you summarized part of it, but you're missing a really important aspect sure. of it, which is, um, first of all, all of these ideas really predate the Soviet experiment in what we call the Soviet Union, which is now Russia. But there were these experiments actually going on in Western Europe, particularly in Germany, and then later in places like Sweden and and Denmark and Norway. And it's not just that women had opportunities for education and opportunities for employment outside of the home. It was that the socialist government, especially when these policies were put into place in the Soviet Union, but as I said, they were also put into place in Germany prior to 1917, the socialist government paid for childcare, paid mater- paid maternity leaves. They also experimented with things like public cafeterias, public laundries, and something that was really important was amending cooperatives, places where you could drop off mending because women spent a lot of time, you know, before the advent of ready-to-wear, women spent a lot of time actually fixing clothes, but 
buttons that had fallen off and things, tears and things like that. So all of this labor was socialized or attempted to be socialized in some way. And that is what freed women largely to be able to work outside the home. Now, the important thing, of course, is that women were also working outside of the home under capitalism, under terrible conditions in the sense that many women basically worked 16 hours a day at the factory. They had no form of maternity leaves. A lot of babies were born on the assembly line. The infant mortality rate and maternal mortality rate were extremely high among the working class women. So I think that it was also, it's not just about what we think of as a kind of a liberal feminist emancipation of women, you know, education and access to the professions. It's also about society's responsibility for kind of picking up some of the care work that is done in the home and, and, and or just the kind of what we think of as, as housework these days. That's what was so unique, I think, about these socialist societies. And so what that meant in some ways was that not only did women have more freedom in terms of their personal lives, but um, they were also, they became kind of more autonomous in, in terms of their care responsibilities because they were supported by a society that basically valued the labor that they did in the home. Does that make sense? It does. And I think there's an, you know, in America, we often think about women entering the workforce has to a certain extent helped them in that Again, leaving that sort of financial dependence in that they can not necessarily have to marry for money or, or dependence and they can more easily leave marriages. But to your, your point, you know, I, I've read some sort, sort of surveys from years and years ago that if you ask men, should men do an equal uh, portion of the housework, they will always say yes. But in reality, they, they often don't. So you have this, you know, double duty uh, and it hurts women sort of advance professionally and, and things like that. Right, exactly. And it's also, I think that the the issue is when this work, um, it's just, it, it seems that it's not really valued, even though it's really essential, right? Caring mm-hmm. for the elderly, caring for children, caring for the ill and infirm, you know, care work is extremely valuable to our society. You know, we all at some point need it. But I think that what's interesting is that there's a sort of reluctance to to think of this as some somehow like a, a contribution to the social good. And I think that and w- whether we're talking about the state socialist countries in Eastern Europe or probably more relevantly, the democratic socialist countries of Western Europe, in particular Scandinavia, what they've done is they've basically said, this is a value to society and society should support it. The same way that we have social security in this country to support the elderly and we have, mm. you know, programs like Medicare, for instance, we, you know, could think of these same sort of large social programs around childcare or federally mandated paid maternity leave. I mean, the United States is one of the few countries in the world that doesn't have some form of federally mandated paid maternity leave or parental leave. It's really, really problematic. And it's because despite the fact that, you know, um, we want women to apparently want women to have babies, we certainly don't want them to have the time or the resources to care for them, which I think is really kind of contradictory and problematic. Now, I want to get straight to the numbers. Sure. Uh, the basic <laughs> title, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. How do you even go about quantifying this or, yeah. or yeah, proving this? Sure. This is a tricky question, of course. So, um, so the one thing that I want to pick up on that you mentioned earlier is that Look, these socialist theorists have been talking about the relationship between not only women's emancipation and socialism, but also sexuality and socialism since the late 19th century. And there was a theory going again back to Babel that sexual relations between men and women, men and women would improve sexual relations, sorry, between men and women would improve under a situation where there's a wider social safety net. Sorry, not to, uh, Babel, can you just give a a brief introduction of who that is? Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. (laughs) That's really important, actually. So August Babel was a German social democrat who wrote this really important book called Woman and Socialism in 1879. You know, Mm. he's also, he was a a politician, a left politician in the Bundestag. He was widely credited as the first politician to ever make a public speech in favor of the decriminalization of homosexuality in 1898. So he's kind of a, a huge figure in terms of, of, of understanding sexuality from a left perspective. And a lot of people don't know about him, but he's really interesting. And he was really talking about sex. So to answer your question, what we look for when we're trying to answer this very complicated question is a natural experiment. And the natural experiment, of course, is the collapse of socialism in 1989 or 1991 and what happens afterwards. 
So one way to look at this is to look at comparisons between countries that are very similar. And in this case, the best example is going to be East and West Germany, because these are pretty culturally homogenous societies um, divided by just 40 years of capitalism versus communism. And so there were some social psychologists and sexologists who were asking, again, um, it's important to say that this is self-reported data, but they were asking East and West German women and men various questions about their sex lives. They were asking them questions about all sorts of things in Mm -hmm. the aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall, because this is like for sociologists, this is a field day, right? If you have (laughs) two populations that are really similar and the only thing that's different is the economic system system under which they live, this is fantastic from a research social science point of view. So here are the numbers, right? Um, so several different, you know, studies were, were conducted and a couple of the findings were really fascinating. So they were at, you know, for instance, East and West German, um, women were asked, did you feel happy after the last time you had sex? And for the East German women, 82% said, yes, they did. But for the West German women, only 52% said, yes, they did. And if you reverse that statistic, that means that 18%, almost one in five GDR women were not happy or less happy. And um, in West Germany, it's almost half or 48%. So I think that's interesting. The other thing is um, another question was, did you, uh, did your last sexual encounter leave you satisfied? And again, satisfied is a subjective word. So you got to understand that in the context of the question that people are going to be interpreting this in their own way. But in this case, the East German men and women were pretty equally satisfied. 75% of East German women and 74% of men said, yes, they were satisfied. Mm. But again, if we look at West Germany, 84% of West German men said, yes, they were satisfied but only 46% of West German women, which means that there's an interesting disparity. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what's going on? The other thing that I think is interesting is that East German men and women also shared similar preferences. So when they asked about their proclivity to get married, um, it turns out that, again, the East German men and women had shared a pretty um, pretty similar point of view about marriage. 73% of women and 74% of East German men were in favor of getting married. But when you ask the West Germans, there was a big disparity. 71% of women wanted to get married, but only 50% of, 57% of men wanted to. So there shows you that there's something going on. And I think that there have been several different studies. Um, we've looked at the Polish situation around um, sexological training under communism versus what happened after communism. I have a colleague in Poland, Agnieszka Kozianska, who does really interesting work. There's been a book about Czechoslovakia called Sexual Liberation Socialist Style by another colleague of mine, Katarzyna Liskova, who also talks about sexual liberation in Czechoslovakia before 68. And I think what we find in all of these cases, now, of course, this is not talking about all of the Eastern Bloc countries. Romania was awful. Albania Mm. was pretty awful. But to a certain extent, there is some evidence that people experience their sexuality in a much less commodified way than people in the West. And I think that what happened after 89 is that sexuality becomes re-commodified in a really interesting way. And, you know, one of the points of the book is not to necessarily make a slam dunk case in favor of sex under socialism, but to point out that we really need to think about the ways that capitalism creates a transactional ethos around our sexuality and to push back against it. So you've got these theorists and then early socialism, uh, but then even your book, you know, in under Stalin, everything kind of steps back. So pre-Stalin, you have legalization of abortion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Women still have this kind of pressure on them to create families for the revolution and stuff like that, but they they, they have these safety nets. Um, And then that all kind of goes away uh, post-50s. Uh, post 36, 1936. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think that the hardest thing for, for those of us who are interested in these questions is that in every case where these early socialist policies were put into place, they turn out to be quite expensive and they also turn out to be quite unpopular with male leaders. Um, I think the revolution in the family you know, for people like Stalin, who were, you know, much more keen on industrializing the economy and putting the Soviet Union on track to be some kind of a superpower, the the, the micro changes that were necessary, you know, according to socialist theory and the family were less of interest to him. And so, yeah, all of these policies get reversed. Um, abortion is made illegal. There's much more of an emphasis on the nuclear family. Uh, homosexuality is recriminalized. You know, it, it turns out to be a very conservative society after 1936. 
And I think that's partially because there's a backlash. Um, Russia was largely, the Soviet Union was largely a peasant country at the time. And a lot of peasants felt there was a lot of upheaval, which there obviously was after World War One, and then a civil war and then an awful famine. And then, of course, Stalin in general was pretty awful. So people were hoping that the family would be kind be a kind of bulwark against the difficulties of living in an early socialist society. And again, as I say in the book, I have no interest whatsoever in returning to any form of 20th century state socialism. I think that that experiment just failed and there's no reason to go back to it. But I do think there is reason to think about the kinds of policies that they used to um, reimagine the family. And I think that's the real crux of the problem is that none of these state socialist uh, economies and societies really end up challenging patriarchy in the home in a profound way. And patriarchy proves that to be very, very persistent. And that's been one of the most difficult things. And I say this as well in the book is why was patriarchy so persistent? Why was it so difficult to, in a society that sort of abolished private property by administrative decree overnight, why was it so difficult to change kind of basic family structure? I think that's a really interesting question that deserves some serious contemplation. What's interesting, and you also note this in your book, is again, in your sort of European style socialism, which I don't, uh, you wouldn't necessarily call a failure like you would Soviet style socialism. Right. right. Um, we, we see a, a lot of these gains. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, so that's what's so interesting about, for instance, the Swedish case. So Sweden has this amazing policy around parental leave. It's 390 days of paid leave at 80% of your salary in Sweden, which is an incredibly generous policy. Hmm. But for instance, um, one of the provisions of this policy is that at least three months of this leave has to be used by both parents. Hmm. So, So this means that fathers have to take 90 days to spend with their, you know, children in order for the, the the partner, the pair to get the full 390 day leave. And I think that what that has done is, you know, it's been incredibly successful. People take this leave and, you know, men feel a lot more sort of committed to child, you know, child care and, and, you know, being an active partner around the home. And to come back to something that you asked me earlier about the numbers, You know, one of the things that we have now are two pretty good, robust studies. One is a 2006 study in the United States, and the other is a longitudinal study in Germany of about 1,400 German couples, heterosexual couples that had been together for five years or more. And what we know is that when childcare is shared more equitably among heterosexual couples, and when there's a perceived uh, equality of housework or, or you know, uh, sort of labor put in around the home, sexu- sexual frequency increases. So couples generally tend to have more sex. Again, there's a question about how you quantify better sex. Is it is it qualitatively or quantitatively better? I'm, I know all those questions are complicated. But in the German study, it turns out that people report not only do they have sex more often, but they also have better, more satisfying sex when there's a perception of equality. So I do think that to the extent that these Western, what we would call democratic socialist societies are trying to tackle this problem. They're doing it in a more progressive way in the sense that they are trying to tackle the underlying issue of gender roles in a way that East European countries might have tried, but they just failed. Um, And then, of course, they had, you know, people in power like Stalin who just reversed everything and there was no dissent or possibility of dissent in the face of that kind of legal action. I want to step back a little bit. So another interesting thing you document in the book is while all these advances are being made uh, in the Soviet Union for women, uh, there's kind of a response to that in the United States, almost a, a pressure. Yeah. So that's something that like I have this more recent book called Second World, Second Sex that just came out. It's in a, it's an academic book. But one of the key arguments in that book is that the pressure internationally by not only women in the Soviet Union, but also women in the Eastern Bloc. So women's organizations in places like Poland or Hungary or Czechoslovakia or Bulgaria, Romania, all of these countries were very active at the United Nations during this thing called the UN Decade for Women, which happened between 1975 and 1985. But even prior to that, there was a sense of superpower rivalry around women's rights. And I think that we have underestimated in this country the role that socialist women's activism on the global stage played in actually promoting 
uh, women's rights in this country. So, for instance, I, I mentioned in the book, it's a very concrete example. In 1957, after the launch of Sputnik, you have the passage of the National Defense Education Act, which is 1958. And it's the first piece of federal legislation that puts aside money for the education of women in math and science. You also have the 1961, there's an executive order creating the first presidential commission on, the, on commission on the status of women signed by President Kennedy. And in the language of that executive order, they cite national security. There was basically a fear that the Soviets were going to beat the United States at the space race because they were they had doubled the brain, the brain power. They were actually using women in the fields of science and technology. And if we look at, for instance, something like a piece of legislation in the United States, like Title IX, which is allowed women access to sports, the history of Title IX is in direct relationship to the Soviets beating us, beating the United States uh, and the East European countries, as well as the Soviet Union, beating us at the medal count in the <laughs> 1973 Olympics, right? So there is this way that there's this constant kind of back and forth between the Eastern Bloc and the Western capitalist countries. And I think my colleague Maxine Molyneux, who's a sociologist in the UK, has argued that a lot of women's rights in the West was a reaction to, a catch-up to the Eastern Bloc progress in terms, especially in terms of legal equality. And I think we, that's a story that has yet to be truly told or acknowledged, even though there's tons of evidence for it in all sorts of policy documents and internal letters and things like that. If you look at, for instance, the um, second presidential commission, commission on the status of women under President Nixon, the women on that committee are saying, hey, you know, there are a lot of countries that are not really democracies that have better legal frameworks for women's rights than the United States. We got to do something about this. So I think it's really interesting to think about the ways in which Cold War superpower rivalry might have promoted women's rights in the long run. Wasn't a similar kind of argument made about civil rights in that a big piece of Soviet propaganda was America says they're the land of the free, yet look at how they treat their, their people of color. Is, is there a similar dynamic happening? Absolutely. Mary Dedziak's book, Cold War Civil Rights, is precisely about that topic. Um, she makes a great argument. And I also think that if you look at somebody like Eric McDuffie, he has a book called Sojourning for Freedom, which talks about left black feminism in the United States and how so many women, so many feminists in this country, especially people of color, were really radicalized in left movements um, before the 60s. I mean, they were you know rad radicalized earlier. And so I think that it's really worth thinking about the ways in which the Cold War not only you know, promoted women's rights, but also all sorts of other human rights. I mean, I have a, another colleague in, in Geneva, her name is Sandrine Cott, and she talks about labor rights at the ILO and shows very clearly that super, super power rivalry at the International Labor Organization was responsible for lots of conventions on international conventions on labor rights that helped workers both in the East and in the West. And I think that's really important. Wow. To, to acknowledge. Yeah. But we don't we tend not to talk about it. You know, there are books that talk about the women's movement in this country that don't even mention the Cold War as a factor or don't even <laughs> mention that the Cold War was going on. And I think that's incredibly short sighted because, of course, it was important. As you say, you know, the the United States was championing itself as the defender of liberty and freedom. And when it did that, you know, and like delegations you know, f you know, African delegations to the UN came to the United States and had to, you know, be segregated. That doesn't really bode, doesn't look, look well for Western democracy, right? Yeah. So you have th this movement. What happens after the collapse of the Soviet Union to, to women and, and sexual relations? Yeah. So, I mean, that's the, that's the big chunk of the book that uh, is the chapter five. So I think it's important to say that the whole book is not only about sex and sexuality. It's also about things like citizenship and leadership and motherhood and work. But these two chapters really deal specifically with the sort of return to a kind of sexual marketplace after 1989 in Eastern Europe and after 1991 in the Soviet Union, because, of course, the Soviet Union falls a little bit later than the East European countries, which become democratic a little earlier. 
So what you see very clearly is a return to a kind of transactional ethos around sexuality. And in the book, I talk about these colleagues of mine at the European University of St. Petersburg, who did these life history interviews with Soviet and Russian women about their quote unquote sexual scripts, like how they discuss their sex lives and how they understand their sex lives. And one of the things that they find is that there were these scripts under late socialism called the friendship script and the romance script, whereby women, you know, were having intimate relations with people that they liked or that they considered comrades and friends. And that the sort of more materialist or transactional script really appears after 1991, where sexuality becomes something that you do in order to get ahead, in order to pay your rent. And I think what's really interesting is that that sort of idea and what I try to do in the book is try to show that that idea, although it never completely disappeared um, in Eastern Europe, it was certainly much less of a factor in women's decisions to choose partners than it remained uh, and remains in the West. So you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times um, and you got a lot of responses to it, both positive <laughs> and negative. Yeah. Uh, that that makes the, the basic argument that we're having here. Um, you got a really interesting piece of mail that that you document in the book about a woman complaining about life under socialism. And I forget exactly what country she's from. She was che Czechoslovakia. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know the one I'm talking about. But yeah. if I recall call correctly, she's documenting her her horrible day where she wakes <laughs> up at 6 a.m. or something like that, drops the kid off at a daycare, takes public transportation for five minutes to go to work, comes home. Her husband gets home at three and like cooks for the kids and has a meal ready for her. And then, you know, they because they have to wake up so early and take care of the kids, they, they go to bed and go over. Now, I'm not saying that the struggle is not real, so to speak, but right. um, it, it's interesting. Well, yeah. T t tell us a little bit about that letter. Yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, I got a lot of mail, I will say, and a lot of it came from Eastern Europe. And one of the reasons I actually decided to write the book was because so many people from East Europe actually wrote me and said, thank you for the yeah. op-ed. Like, you know, we really need to have this conversation. But of course there were people who disagreed and the, but interestingly, a lot of the people who disagreed were, disagreed were East Europeans who had left, as was the case of this woman from Czechoslovakia who had been living in Sweden, I think, or, oh no, sorry, in Switzerland since the late 1950s or early 1960s. But yeah, she basically described her day as getting up, taking her child to a childcare, which was, you know, after her maternity, her paid maternity leave. And she makes it very clear that they owned their own apartment and they bought furniture for their apartment, you know, something that's supposed to be really difficult to do under communism. And so they had to work because they had to pay back the loans that they had taken out to buy this apartment. They had a mortgage. But yeah, her husband got off work at three, went to the grocery store got food, cooked dinner. She got home at five and, you know, they would have dinner together and then, you know, do the bath and the things that you do with your kids. And then they'd go to bed exhausted. And they were so exhausted that their lives, you know, she sort of thought of their lives as being pretty unromantic. And what I think was so interesting about that letter is she has no idea the material conditions under which people in 2019 or young couples in 2019 are trying to navigate work and family at the same time. I mean, it's just so incredibly precarious, especially in a place like the United States where there isn't any form of subsidized childcare, where public transportation is pretty unreliable, where nobody gets off work at three o'clock, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, you know, and I think that it's just, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a disconnect between what, you know, again, I want to be respectful and say everybody's struggles are real in their own minds. I totally get that. But I think that, the kind of extreme precarity, especially for especially for you know younger people these days, I think with the gig economy and you know how student debt has exploded in the United States and the terrible situation with healthcare and you know trying to deal with getting insurance on an exchange or whatever, it's 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 a it's a much bleaker prospect that she can than she can imagine as a retired woman living in Switzerland. So I use the letter as a way of just sort of pointing out that I don't want to say that these East European societies were perfect. They had obviously of tons of problems, right? I'm not denying any of that. And even when we just look at the social policy, people say that the kindergartens weren't always the highest quality 
quality or the food in the cafeteria wasn't as good and they didn't do as good of a job with your laundry as they might have done if you went to the public laundry. I mean, of course, there are always going to be issues like that. But on the whole, one of the things that we see, even like today, if you look at Eurostat statistics comparing two other countries that are culturally quite similar, Austria and Hungary, I think from 2018, uh, 75% of Hungarian kids between the age of three and seven are in a kindergarten compared to only 25% in Austria. Mm. And that's a huge difference. And that's a legacy of the idea that in under communism in Hungary, it was acceptable for mothers to put their kids in childcare. And it was less acceptable in, in Austria where gender roles were much more conservative and, you know, families wanted their children to be raised at home. So I think that there are these really important legacies and we should discuss them and see how we can apply the experiences of these countries, again, not only in Eastern Europe, but also in Scandinavia and elsewhere to the current kind of turbo capitalist situation that we're living in right now, where people are feeling not only alienated from their labor, but also incredibly alienated from their their emotions and their affections and their attentions. And I've seen, at least in Russia, surveys are showing a growing number of people are becoming nostalgic for the days of the Soviet Union. Is that something you've noticed in, in your research, uh, not only in, in Russia, but sort of in Eastern Europe as well? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my I have a book, 2011, called Lost in Transition, and it all it deals a lot with this issue of nostalgia and how pervasive it is. In fact, my one of my first articles as an academic, I think back in 2004, was about, it's called Red Nostalgia. I saw it very early. Um, and there, at the time, there was a discussion that as the older generation aged and died off, that the nostalgia would disappear. And in fact, what you're seeing across many social, uh, former socialist countries in Eastern Europe is, in fact, it's increasing, the, the nostalgia for the past. And the reason it's increasing is because it's increasing among people born after 1989 or 1991, which is really fascinating because these are people who actually never lived under socialism, but all they see are the old socialist movies or they look at their parents' photo albums or their parents' home movies about what life was like. And they're becoming increasingly critical of the kind of turbo capitalist, globalized, you know, neoliberal present. And so I think that, in fact, social scientists and, and, and public opinion researchers are finding this disturbing trend. I mean, to many people, it's very disturbing that people, for instance, in the in Russia are nostalgic for people like Stalin, right? Wow. And people are looking back and saying, okay, there were some serious shortcomings of that system, but there are also some serious shortcomings of the present system. Is it almost like an escapist fantasy? In other words, they are doing so poorly under the transition of capitalism that they take on this fantasy that might not be super realistic. Is that accurate? Well, I think so. I think that there's that's probably true for these younger people who were mm -hmm. born after 89, right? That that don't really have a sense. They, they kind of romantic. There's a little bit of romanticization that's going on there. But I think that for the, the older generations or what I would think of as like Gen X in Eastern Europe, so people that were born between like 65 and 80, mm -hmm. who were, you know, at least they were they were cognizant of historical events in 1989 one of my colleagues describes you, you know you talk to people she does research in in uh, Lithuania and you talk to people which was uh, which is now an independent country but was part of the former Soviet Union and she talks to people and says well how was communism like you describe communism and say oh well communism was awful you know Soviet imperialism Russian imperialism and she said can you describe what communism was like and they describe communism as being warm clean and bright because they had heat in their homes, they had electricity, and they had, um, you know, access to pretty regular running water, which was subsidized. So they describe post-communism as dirty, smelly, and dark. And the reason it's dark is because they can't afford electricity, so they're turning off their lights at night. They burn candles, which creates this nasty um, kind of sooty thing in the house. Mm -hmm. And they don't have a subsidized water anymore. And so they don't, they're not flushing their toilets as often, and they're not showering as often, so it's also smelly. 
And I think that that tells you a lot about the tactile experience of the pre and post 89 uh, or 91 in this case, because it's the Soviet Union reality of socialism versus post-socialism. Now, it's important to point out that there are people who are doing a lot better off after 89 and 91 in the region. But for many, many populations, especially the elderly, especially the rural population or the urban poor, you know, the, the, there's an economist named Branko Milanovic, and he wrote an interesting article in 2014, I believe, called For Whom the Wall Fell, where he showed that something like 80% of the people living in the region did not have the transition to capitalism that was promised in 89 or 91, because their, their, their actual standard of living has not yet met or exceeded what was um, possible for most people in the region. So there is an so the point is there's an incredible amount of nostalgia. Now, I do think as as you point out that some of this is just unrealistic, you know, that ship has sailed. I don't think anybody wants to go back to 20th century state socialism even in the region. Yeah, there might be some diehard tankies around who are <laughs> hoping, you know, that, that that they can go back to some kind of more stable society. But I think that what people are really nostalgic for is not only the some kind of social security and economic stability, a kind of wider social safety net, but they're also and and this comes up very clearly in especially the ethnographic research and in the and in the social science public opinion research, they're nostalgic for a kind of social trust and a sociality that people seem to have more of before the kind of advent of hyper-competitive late capitalism in the region. Hmm. I want to shift gears a little bit. So we, we've brought this up. Uh, so the idea of sexual economy is, is controversial in a lot of ways uh, because the the basic idea is that sex works like a market mm -hmm. and you have buyers and sellers, uh, not necessarily in the sex work sense, but you know if you're a man, you have money to offer or possibly prestige or other things. And if you're a woman, you have your attractiveness and, and things like that. Um, what's interesting is this is often a, a sort of idea that comes from the right. Your book gives a weird sort of credence to that. And I want to talk about what I think is an amazing example of your book. There's a, a famous pickup artist. And if anyone is blissfully unaware of pickup artists, they are, um, well, they're, they're men that often uh, exist in this sphere with men's rights activists uh, and incels, which we'll get to in a second, uh, who often are incredibly misogynistic. But their their goal in life is essentially to sleep with as many women as possible, uh, often using ways that could be described as manipulative or uh, just straight up lying. But Roosh, who is a, a famous uh, pickup artist, who I believe has now converted right. to uh, Christianity, <laughs> but that's a separate conversation. He did mushrooms or something, right? <laughs> yeah, he, he found Jesus. Um, so Roosh found Jesus, but before he found Jesus, he traveled to Denmark and essentially warned his fellow pickup artists uh, not to go to Denmark because, uh, to put it crudely, the women don't put out. Uh, and you talk about this in the book. Yeah, exactly. Because, and his argument, which I find as a kind of interesting data point in support of my argument, is that the reason women in Denmark don't put out, I believe his book is called Don't Bang Denmark, right, is because they have a social safety net, right? And women are quite independent. And so they don't sort of fall for the kind of standard playbook of pickup artist tricks. I mean, I think that that's really fascinating, um, that the idea that when women have a little bit more economic autonomy, and again, this is because of a wider social safety net, that they are going to be a lot more, um, a, a lot less susceptible to the kind of manosphere, you know, dominance that somebody like Roosh promotes. And uh, I sent you a, a certain article. This is not yes. from the pickup archery community. Uh, <laughs> I, I see you've read it by your laugh. But, um, yes. <laughs> so, so this one will require a little bit of an introduction. I want to make sure everyone gets it. So uh, just some terminology. So this is about incels. Uh, that's short for involuntary celibate. Um, these are, are people, often straight men, who have not had sex, uh, but not by their own volition, aka they're involuntarily celibate. Oftentimes they exist in this kind of men's rights, uh, hyper-misogynistic space where it's not, it was originally founded as a very supportive space by, uh, I believe, a, a bisexual woman who she just wanted to create like a, a support, like, oh, I, I'm not really dating. I'm not really meeting anyone. And here's like a, a, a very, like, like, supportive space to to help everyone and talk it out. And of course, the toxic element came in and ruined it all. 
So it's become, uh, you know, women owe you sex, but they're not giving it to you. Uh, the incels have this lingo of Chads and Stacys. Chads are sort of the hyper-masculine men who get all the women. Stacys are your uh, attractive women who sleep with the Chads. And then incels are left out of it and, and therefore kind of shafted by this whole process. And again, there's a lot of like entitlement uh, about uh, some of them want the the state to sort of mandate uh, uh, either girlfriends for men or or just sort of reinst- reinstituting uh, like the the nuclear family as a social norm. Uh, not that he is an incel, but Jordan Peterson I think even said something about compulsory uh, monogamy. Um, mm-hmm. So so these are all very uh, uh, popular ideas there. But within the inc- there's a lot of sub incel communities. One uh, is called the the black cell or sorry the black pill, um, which is Incels often, I'm not getting laid, I want to get laid, and we'll turn to pickup artistry. However, uh, black, the black pill says pickup artistry is a lie. There's some of us who, no matter what we do, no matter what kind of manipulation or tricks or books we read, we will never be able to sleep with anyone. Therefore, we're just going to double down on us never, ever having sex uh, and a lot of hatred of women. And there was one post that was shared by uh, to me by a coworker years ago, and I've never forgotten about it for a reason that will become clear. Uh, I believe it's called A Marxist Critique of Sexual Economy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so here is just a, a brief quote. In the sexual economy, there are two distinct classes of men, chads and everyone else. There is a group which keeps most women for itself, the Chad Bourgeois. The, sorry. <laughs> there is a group which keeps most women for itself, the Chad Bourgeois, and a much larger group which, which, despite being responsible for maintaining global civilization with their labor so that Chad is free to take all he wants, is denied most women. These are the sexual proletariat. Uh, then they continue, the sexuality of women should be evenly spread among society, but it is not. Instead, it is commodified by sexual capitalism and given to the Chad. It's weird because on one end, we can talk about in capitalism, we see a kind of sexual economy that we also dislike and also uh, see lots of problems with things like that, if you want to give your response. Yeah. Wow. So I have to say, I had not seen this until you sent it to me. So I read it and I really took me a while to think about it. I was... (laughs) I mean, you know, obviously there's this kind of odious idea that women's sexuality is a commodity, right? Mm-hmm. And that women themselves, the idea that you could equitably redistribute women is that, and the state would do this means that some women would basically be having sex with men that they're not attracted to by some kind of compulsion. I find that somewhat problematic, of right? Course. The idea that, <laughs> that, um, that women's sexuality is just a commodity and that the problem is that women are gatekeeping this thing that men should be entitled to. So aside from that general issue, just the sort of interestingness of the Marxist critique is that they get it all wrong. I think (laughs) these guys don't really know what they're talking about because somewhere in that piece, they say that sexual inequality precedes economic inequality. Yes. And that just that doesn't seem to make very much sense with their idea of hypergamy, the idea that women are going to marry up or going to seek higher status men. They don't really explain what the biological basis for any of this evolutionary psychology actually is, right? So they're assuming that, I mean, this is based on my understanding, and you can please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm (laughs) definitely not an expert here. But my understanding is that chads have some kind of correct bone structure in In their their jaw, In their jaw, yeah. In their jaw, right? They're tall and they have these sort of Superman-like jaws, square jaws or something. And so that these guys are going out and having very expensive plastic surgery to make their jaws a certain way. And that, and that because these chads have the right jaw, which is just by winning the genetic lottery, they have this sexual prowess, which then somehow translates into economic power. That's the part of it that just seems to be really bizarre to me. I, I think you could, God, I can't believe, but uh, I think you could, there, there are studies, for instance, that taller people um, earn sure. more money, that more attractive people get further in life. It, maybe that's what they're trying to say. 
I, I think that might be true, but I think that that's sort of counter. Um, there are many counter examples of, you know, the whole idea of when we, I mean, just to think of a derogatory word that's often applied to women of a gold digger. Right. Right. I mean, gold diggers are looking for wealthy men. They're not necessarily looking for men with a certain shape of jaw. Right. And so I think that the, the, to me, the issue that they miss is, and this is the thing that I'd like to say, is I think the way that white supremacists avoid critiquing capital by blaming foreigners and minorities, I think some of these sort of manosphere communities avoid critiquing capital by blaming women. Right. When the underlying problem is really capital. I mean, the reason that I bring up sexual economics theory in the book is not to endorse it as a model, but to just point out that Baumeister and Vos, who are the two scholars who wrote the initial article, wrote it without really realizing, I think, that this, the critique that they were putting forward, which is not really a critique, it's just sort of like an observation mm -hmm. about heterosexual dating markets in, in capitalism, is very similar to what the socialists were writing about in the 19th century. I thought that was really interesting. And that the reason that the East Germans, for instance, said that their society was superior to West Germany and because they were people were basically having better sex was based on this idea that socialist societies decommodified interpersonal uh, interpersonal relations to such an extent that people were much more freer and natural. And I think what the incels miss, I mean, they're so status obsessed mm -hmm. and I can't understand how they could be so status obsessed and not look at the system that commodifies human beings and ranks us based on things like status, which is capitalism. Yeah. Right? And I think they're, they're, I think their two main things are you're either born with the, the, the correct bone structure or you get a little bit older and you have money and then women are uh, after you because of their money. And if you don't have money and don't have the correct bone structure, then you're screwed. But, but to your point, I, I mean, this is a, a rare example of an incel making a very Marxist argument, even if it's completely wrong. Um, right. <laughs> but, but, but again, when they're talking I mean, this is what makes your book so interesting is because they're completely unable to understand how capitalism shapes things, they'll use terms like all women are gold diggers. Uh, but we see in Russia where where sort of socialism ends, you have women in desperate situations who are entering right. these sort of gold digger academies. Um, so like they can't see that not because women are inherently selfish or greedy or terrible, but because desperation makes us do awful things. And and you could even say makes them do, them do awful things. They're like unable to sort of draw that sort of compassion or solidarity uh, with the, these other uh, issues. Right. And I also think what's really important is that for, I think for a lot of these men, having a wider social safety net is going to actually make their lives better, right? right? Because women are going to be, right, less hypergamous in when they're in a less precarious economic situation. And there's going to be a lot less pressure on men to be, quote unquote, providers, right? So I think that, in fact, you know, as I was Googling around, you know, this is not in any way a, 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 a social scientific sample, <laughs> but I found a letter to the American conservative from a guy who sort of self-identifies as a very conservative Catholic and an incel who was saying that he was basically being attracted by people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, basically by sort of some form of democratic socialism, because he just really thought that his romantic chances would be improved in a society where <laughs> he wasn't as precarious. So wow. I think that there's a possibility here that if these guys who are obviously using Marxist theory um, to try to make sense of their worlds, if they actually stepped back and read somebody like Engels or Bebel, you know, this sort of wider universe of socialist theorists, particularly in the middle of the of the 19th century, but even later, you know, going to Colin Alexander Kollontai and things like that. If they actually read some of these socialist theories of love and sexuality and relations, they would they would understand that I think men would benefit a lot too from a society where, you know, we're not as status obsessed because the reason that we're status obsessed, the reason that we're commodifying ourselves in this really crass way. I listened, by the way, to your podcast with Lynn Siegel mm. and, you know, this idea of, you know, the, 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 the self as the commodity. I think that, you know, we are not only, as she points out, alienated from our labor, but we're increasingly alienated from our emotions. We're alienated from our attentions and affections. And I think that that's, that's also um, 
supporting this epidemic of loneliness. It's not just the incels, right? It's a lot of people are feeling incredibly lonely and isolated in our society. And it's related in some ways to this desperate status seeking, which is, you know, allowing us, we think, to get a foothold in a very precarious late capitalist economy. And the problem isn't women or minorities or foreigners. I mean, I think those are the easy scapegoats. The problem is the underlying economic system. And, you know, that's what I was hoping to get people to think about in writing this book. I'm not... I am an academic. I don't generally write for, you know, a more popular audience, but this was something that I felt it was a conversation that needed to be had. And I don't think it's, I mean, yeah, there are all sorts of ways that we could think about, um, you know, interactions between, you know, human interactions, you know, men have stereotypes about women and women have stereotypes about men. And there are going to be some social psychological issues that are going to underpin any sort of heterosexual, heterosexual courtship. But this, and, you know, I don't want to say that everything is the economy. I'm not an economic reductionist in that, Mm -hmm. in that respect, but I do think that some of it is the economy. And, you know, we think about the way that the economy impacts our, ability to get a job and our ability to go to school and our ability to access the medical system and to ability to see a doctor. But very few young people, as far as I know, maybe outside of the very small incel community, are actually talking about the way the economy impacts our personal lives, our intimate lives. And I actually think that it's really important that if we start at the family level, if we start at the at the level of our romantic partners, and, and I would say even more broadly, like our immediate friend groups and our parents and our children, what we'll see is that early socialist theorists really had a very different idea of how we could reform society by changing our interpersonal relations. This is not something that's new. This is something that's been discussed for a really long time, and I think it's been forgotten. So you, you write a lot in your book about the early socialist theories. We've been talking uh, about them, Babel, Angles, etc. Um, can you sort of just briefly uh, give us a, a synopsis because we're running low on time, but also I feel like a lot of these theories are often kind of skipped over by, by Marxist is something that you pointed out to me earlier. Absolutely. So, so in the first place, I teach a whole semester long class on this. Yes. So it's hard to, it's hard to, to give us to dance, but, but the, the, the basic idea, right, is that Alexandra Kolontai has this article called make way for winged Eros, a letter to working youth. And she basically does a beautiful Marxist rendition of love. Uh, a theory of love, which is that in different historical epochs, the relations of production impact the ideal of love in any given society. And what year and was so that? She, uh, that is 1926, I believe. Um, and she basically argues that this sort of monogamy, this thing that, you know, Jordan Peterson is is promoting, is sort of the ideal form of love that supports the bourgeois class and economic capitalist relations, because as Engels and Babel said before her, she was heavily influenced by them. The bourgeois monogamous family is the fundamental unit in society that allows for the inter- generational transfer of private property. And so basically women become subjugated, uh, importantly, according to Engels, at the moment when private property starts to be accumulated. And he puts that around the invention of agriculture. Prior to that, we basically lived in, according to this theory, um, sort of a more primitive communistic society where sexual relations weren't as fixed. So the idea that Kolontai had is that as we move into a more socialist future, we are going to move away from having these very intense romantic connections to just one partner, your monogamous pair person, and we will have broader social networks. We will have love-type relationships. She actually calls it comradely love with a, a, a wider group of people so that we won't have so much demand on our private part, our, our, our sort of individual uh, romantic partner. Because right, she sort of points out in this essay that 
romantic partners have to be your spiritual companion, your emotional companion, your physical companion, your friend companion, your intellectual companion. They have to be, they have to fulfill all these roles. And so there's an incredible ownership relationship within the monogamous pair. And she basically has this beautiful vision, I think, in some ways, it's a little bit kind of hippie vision, (laughs) that in a society in the future where we have social relationships with a wider network of people, we'll have less demands on our our monogamous pair. And, And only when we start to kind of broaden our circle of love relationships outside of the nuclear family, will we, will we be able to build a really more just and egalitarian society in the future? That's the basic idea. And women's rights are a huge part of that, of course, because um, women require these monogamous relationships with men because for most of history, women are economically dependent on men. The only way that they can sustain themselves is through the marriage relationship. As someone who's read a lot of Marxist writers, I feel like this part of Marxism often, uh, or just socialist literature in general, gets kind of ignored and passed over. And, and there's a specific um, uh, part of Engels that was even omitted from the Communist Manifesto. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that Engels wrote two drafts of the Communist Manifesto before, it, both in 18. 18- um, 47, one in June and one in October before he collaborated with Marx. And in both of those early drafts, there's language in there about children being raised communally from the moment they can leave their mother's care. And that language actually gets taken out of the Communist Manifesto when it's replaced by language about public education. And I think that's really interesting because it means that even Marx thought, or perhaps Marx thought that was too radical. It's really unclear. But Engels was very clearly concerned with reimagining the family. Look, he wanted to transform society, and he saw a fundamental contradiction between trying to transform society but leaving the traditional family intact. And I think that that's like when Alexandra Kolontai wrote that article in 26, she was attacked viciously for, um, for I'm pretty sure it's 26, she was attacked viciously by male uh, party members because they felt that she was being, that she was advocating promiscuity, that she was undermining, undermining society. You know, she became persona non grata pretty quickly for her radical ideas. But that thread of what I would call sort of family, the socialism and the family, family socialism or social reproduction theory. It has lots of different names in the literature. Yeah, I think traditional Marxists don't read it. Now, part of that is because there's sort of a standard catalog of texts that Marxists tend to read, and they tend to exclude uh, people like Col- people like Alexander Kolontai, and certainly they exclude people like Bebel, or even to go earlier, social democrats like Lily Braun. She wrote a really important book called The Woman Question, which also formed the basis of a lot of later social policy around women's rights and the socialization of the family. But I think that I've always myself been quite curious why this more, I would maybe perhaps say radical tradition of rethinking the family as a kind of basic unit of society. So traditional Marxist ideology is that, you know, you you have to transform the relations of production. And I think that these early socialist theorists were saying, but you also have to transform the relations of reproduction in the home. Those two things go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And I'm not sure why it is that people are so afraid. It may be because of anti-communism. You know, that's one of the things I was just talking to a colleague of mine in, who's Italian. And she said that in Italy, in the Italian context, that was the main argument used against the Italian communists was that the communists are going to destroy the family. Right. And that's a very powerful language. In this country, in the 50s, there's a wonderful book by a woman named Elaine Tyler May called Homeward Bound, which makes a very similar argument. Anti-communism meant the reification in some ways of male supremacy and white supremacy and the traditional bourgeois monogamous family. So I do think that anti-communism plays a really big role here, that you can be really radical, but if you talk about transforming the family, then you've gone too far. So I don't know. I I mean, it is a really interesting question. And even in my own personal experience, you know, people are really willing to talk about things like, you know, cooperatives and, you know, employee owned businesses and socialization of the means of production. They're even willing to talk about things like, you know, expanding paid maternity leave or 
building more kindergartens. But when you start talking about socializing the family, right, or, you know, thinking outside the box of bourgeois monogamous marriage, people get really defensive. Well, I mean, I think even the conservative argument, the conservative side that calls everything uh, socialist, regardless of whether it is or not, when you suggest something like paid maternity leave or paternity leave, um, yeah, they, they say it is a, a socialist ploy to, to, to destroy the family. Exactly. That's their. That's always their argument. Child care, even public schooling, I've seen public education is also, you know, a, a, a government ploy to indoctrinate the children and destroy the family. I mean, that language of it's going to destroy the family, that, you know, as if the family is working out so well for so many Americans right now. <laughs> right. right. I think that that's the other thing that we have to keep in mind, you know, <laughs> it's a real problem the way, for instance, so many people, so many women, but, but also men are access healthcare. You know, you, people talk about the fact that you have healthcare from your employer, but for dependent spouses, you get healthcare through your partner, which traps many people into relationships because they're afraid to get a divorce because they'll, they'll lose access to their healthcare. So I think we use the family as this kind of nugget of society, but we don't really understand what that what that does to people if we're trapping them in these unhappy or abusive or unhealthy relationships. I think we have to have that conversation. And also, again, as I said, and I want to say it, you know, I want to emphasize this, that I think that having a broader social safety net, although the book is about women, primarily, I, I think it actually helps everyone. I don't think this is only about women. I think this is about everybody in society. And certainly men are going to be a lot happier if their romantic chances are not all about some kind of status seeking. Now, I'm not saying that that's generally the case everywhere for everyone, but certainly a lot of people perceive it to be that way. And when you talk to young people about Tinder uh, and this, the quote unquote gamification of dating, people feel that they're a commodity on a market. You know, people say I'm on the market again after they break up with their significant other, right? We use market language to talk about our relationships. And I think that that's we need to think, really think critically about that, what that's doing to the way that we perceive ourselves, but also the way we perceive our potential partners. Kristen Godsey, thank you so much. Uh, she's the author of Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. I highly, highly recommend it. When I saw the book title, I was like, uh, what, what could be the argument here? And I was so thoroughly convinced. Uh, so, so thank you for that. Well, I'm glad. You know, I, I think that actually some people see the title and they just think it's not, it's going to be a kind of fluffy argument or something. And they get to the text and it's like, wow, there's all these citations and all of these footnotes. Fluffy is the right word. I was like, whoa, this is going to be some weird theoretical argument about something or other. But yeah, the, the empirical backing is surprising and incredible. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm glad I'm glad you you I'm glad you found the argument compelling because I do think there is empirical look, I'm a social scientist and so I am really interested in empirical questions. I I do recognize that sexual satisfaction is totally subjective and it's very difficult to quantitate uh, quantify or qualify in any way. But that being said, if there is some data out there and the data that we talked about here is only part of what I talk about in the book, we should consider it. Mm. Right? And we should seriously consider well, what would it mean for our individual personal lives if we lived in a more equitable society with so, with less precarity? I think that that's just an interesting, not just theoretical question, but empirical question. Like coming back to the incel thing, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to see like what the percentage of people who self-identify as incels is in a place like Sweden? Yeah, I want to know that. Right. <laughs> I want to know that right I mean, right it's now. an empirical question. I don't know the answer either, but it might tell us something about whether there's a correlation between economic precarity and this feeling of being excluded from the dating market. I don't know, but it would be, it's an answerable question. Well, to any of our listeners, please, please get a grant and go study that. I would love to see it. <laughs> Definitely. Please. I, I highly recommend. Yes. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to subscribe on your preferred podcast app and leave us a review. If you leave five stars, it'll mean the world to me. If you leave four, I'll be pretty happy. And anything else will drive me into a downward spiral of self-doubt. Thank you so much.